Good morning. Is everyone sitting down? More or less comfortably. Good morning. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute and very, very glad to have you here. Can I say, as airlines say, we are aware that this morning you have a choice of uh, events to go to on, uh, in think tank land on the manifestos and the election. We're very glad you've chosen this one. Some of you agile enough may even get round all of them, in which case, as we compare the manifestos, you may be able to compare the events on the manifestos. Um, we are delighted to have some of our main uh, writers on these subjects here today. We've got Giles Wilkes, uh, one of our senior fellows, particularly specialising in uh, business and economics and industrial policy angles of, of things. Joe Owen, who leads up our Brexit programme. Nick Davids, who heads up our public services programme. And we're going to be joined by Rachel Sylvester, who has just come on out. Not at all, not at all. Thank you very much indeed uh, from The Times, who writes right across all this. And a lot to talk about, and um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions. So let's 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 kick right off. And Rachel, if you've caught your breath, a second a second welcome. Very very good to have you with us. Um, looking across, you know, these manifestos uh, have come out uh, really quite late in the day compared to usual. In fact, as Nigel Farage and his musing on whether or not the Brexit party was going to have a manifesto, or indeed, as he finally called it, a contract, uh, when, it, when it appeared, we've become aware that these are part of the, the soft norms, if you like. Uh, parties have put out manifestos, but they might not. Um, what should we make of them, Rachel? Should we take them seriously? And what, what have they told us? Well, And that 83 billion a year extra on public spending, the Labour said, is of course before the pension uh, top up for the so-called WASPy women. That they have 58 billion lump that they they've been talking about. So there's sort of eye-catching initiatives of free broadband, free tuition fees wasn't enough. They then identified this quite clear group of women who miss out on the state pension, aspects of the state pension for an extra top up announcement. Um, but the th I think the thing that's important, um, so Labour's promising this kind of revolution in the shape and size of the state, uh, Tories promising kind of more of the same. In the end, they come down to Brexit and the new identities of politics that leave us to remain rather than left and right. Partly a bit in the manifesto, but not really, because identities are set. So whatever Labour says on tuition fees, in a way, will be outweighed by the ambiguity on Europe. Um, and then the other thing, even perhaps or as important as the Brexit identity, is the fact that the leaders matter more and more in politics. So since 1979, no leader who was the, the leader ahead on the eve of the polls has always been leader of the party that's won. Um, and at the moment, Jeremy Corbyn is just so far behind, even if Labour's policies, as I think they are individually, are very popular, We've got today a poll, uh, one of these MRP polls in the Times saying, showing the Tories heading for a 68-seat majority. So the leadership, how much Boris Johnson isn't liked, Jeremy Corbyn is disliked or mistrusted more. So even though we've, we've been thinking of it as the Brexit and the public services the, uh, 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 campaign, uh, really the leadership is, is mattering enormously. I think it matters enormously. And the, the Labour candidates that I talked to in those red wall seats in the north and the midlands that the Tories need to win. They don't, they don't worry so much about the Brexit policy and the Labour's stand on Brexit. They're all talking about Corbyn. They don't want Corbyn. And just, just from your experience, I mean, could we see the polls narrow? We've seen it they before. They are starting they? to narrow, yeah. yes, absolutely. And this, uh, the poll we've got today, which is a seat-by-seat -seat analysis, as well as a 100,000-people poll, but also 
breaking it down by seat, it shows some incredibly tiny ma majorities in some of those seats. So, so actually just a, a small swing in the, in, in the overall share could yeah, actually change or, a lot of those seats. Or even a tactical voting in right. you know, 30 or 40 seats. So significant tactical voting by remaining, remain supporting voters would, would change the result completely and, and produce a hung parliament. Yes, and uh, that's very much the battleground in the front pages of the papers today, the Times leading with that. Um, all of them, apart from the FT, you would not know an election was on front, its front page this, this morning. Um, Joe, do, does it feel to you like the battle of Brexit? Is this a Brexit election? I think it is in a way that 2017 wasn't. Um, and part of the reason for that is that the parties are actually offering wildly different versions of Brexit in a way that they didn't in 2017, where actually they were quite similar and very um, hedged. So with Conservatives, you've got, we'll be out of the EU by the end of January, and then we will um, negotiate our future relationship, and it'll all be done and dusted by December 2020, a much looser um, form of relationship than Theresa May envisaged, and certainly looser than what Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party want to negotiate with their plan, which is New Deal within three months, and then a referendum with the option to remain um, within six months. So there are two widely different options. Um, there are a couple of important similarities, I think. I mean, the first is that I think all of the parties recognise that perhaps the great British public are fed up of Brexit um, because Conservatives is get Brexit done, Labour will get it sorted, and Lib Dem say stop it, um, which does suggest that maybe they don't feel that Brexit has covered politicians in glory over the last few years. And then the other big um, similarity is it seems that we haven't necessarily learned the lesson of the first phase of Brexit, which is if you double down on unrealistic deadlines, it can cause you headaches in the future. So with the Conservative Party, there is this pledge to wrap up the full future relationship within 11 months, bearing in mind that by the time we have left it will have been 34 months that we'll have spent on the withdrawal agreement. Um, they will need to negotiate, ratify and then implement a new future relationship within 11 months, which is a huge challenge. Your take on that, is it doable? So I think you have to kind of break down the different bits. So negotiations, can you get a deal within 11 months? I mean, yes. It just, like anything, if time is your constraint, then ambition has to uh, adapt around that. So you can end up with a very loose, high-level deal. It will likely involve, as have big deadlines on Brexit to date, when everyone's been pushing towards a big deadline, there has usually been a very big concession. Um, so the UK is likely to have to give quite a lot in order to get that deal. And it has to be unanimity from the Europeans, doesn't it, on that point you've been making. So if someone says fish or Gibraltar, is the whole thing on the skid? Exactly, and that's when you get to the ratification problem, which is, it is, we have spent almost a year in the UK with this kind of will they, won't they pass a deal, but fundamentally we've been in a year of attempting ratification. Um, the problem is much more likely to be on the EU side in the future relationship because you have to if there is any kind of level of ambition, like a Canada-style agreement, it's going to be a mixed agreement, which means European, uh, every European national parliament and some regional parliaments will all get a vote and a veto. Um, now, there is potential for you to kind of short-circuit that process and provisionally apply the deal pending full ratification, which means that's not necessarily a kind of write-off for the 11-month deadline. But the other thing that I think does sometimes get lost is it's not just about having a legal text that is agreed, done and dusted, and that's Brexit done. You actually have to then convert that into the systems and processes of government. Businesses need to adapt. So if this deal pops out in November next year, even in a very ambitious timeline, are you going to say to businesses, OK, this is the deal. You've got four weeks till this comes into force, bearing in mind that when most trade negotiations take place and they agree to steadily reduce barriers to trade, that is done over years. And so would the UK government really say, here's four weeks, these are the new barriers to trade, and they're going to come in, bang, on New Year's Eve 2020? So we might, even in the, be in the best case, we might be talking about another technical extension, a bit more transitions, something. So we might actually get to have an implementation phase that is an implementation phase. Um, 
uh, whereas Rather this than, is more than of Theresa May's favourite word for what was still mm, negotiations. Exactly. And, and, and uh, just no deal has not really flickered through this election campaign, but is no deal still a possibility? Yeah, definitely. I think that is the kind of the big risk if you are beholden to this deadline is A, it increases the risk of big, uh, the need for, for big concessions, B, it makes it much more likely to be a shallow deal, and C, it's much more likely that no deal is still a big prospect that hangs over right until the last moment in negotiation. So it certainly hasn't gone away. Um, the, what no deal means obviously changes. Um, it means that obviously the, um, the financial settlement is agreed through the withdrawal agreement, citizens' rights agreed through the withdrawal agreement, and then the Irish protocol. So those things are kind of carved off and there will be some certainty in those areas, but for the suite of our trading and security relationship, no deal in 2020 is the same as no deal on the 31st of October 2019 or the 29th of March. Great. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that. And uh, Nick, turning to you, public services. Um, so have this, is this battle of money, these, these, these kind of fire hoses of cash being turned at the public services, have they solved the problems that you've been writing about? Um, so we published a report uh, a few weeks ago, performance tracker that looked at some of the key challenges facing public services. And you know, the, the current state of play is difficult for whoever the forms the next government. Um, for each of the nine services we look at, we think that performance has declined, either in terms of the scope of those services or in terms of the quality of what is uh, provided. Um, and that the past approach to achieving efficiencies, which has had some success, um, which has largely been either by cutting staff numbers or by holding down staff pay. This is really after 2010 when the squeeze began. Exactly, yes. Um, and those have, that's been the main way that the government has tried to make efficiencies in these services. But actually, we've probably reached the end of the line in terms of those approaches. So we've already seen the pay cap has largely been removed, and that has been in response to substantial uh, recruitment and retention challenges uh, right across public services. So the question is, is, it has what's been pledged, is that enough to try and reverse some of that? And a lot of the parties in many ways are pledging to go back. So whether it's on uh, school funding, all of the parties are largely pledging to go back to kind of per pupil spending numbers around 2010. Similarly on police numbers, it's a, roughly an additional 20,000 from each of the three main parties, which largely takes us back to 2010 levels. Um, but clearly um, there's a question of even if you return spending and staffing numbers back to those levels, whether that is going to be enough to return performance back to the level that it was at. And even with additional money, there is a risk that that additional money is going to be swallowed up by increases in staff pay, by other cost pressures that these services are facing, and that actually you might not get a huge amount more for the money that has been pledged. Actually going into performance. Let's take specifically the health um, question and let's, let's take them one by one so the Conservatives what they've pledged what would that do to the health service so the the Conservatives broadly have pledged about a 3.1 percent annual increase in each year up to 2023-24 is this including Theresa May's big lump of money so that is Theresa May's yeah, big yeah. lump of money the yeah. uh, additional 20 billion pounds yeah. um, we think that is probably enough to maintain performance levels at 2018-19 levels. As I say, that is below the level that we were at in terms of 09-10. So actually, while there isn't much evidence that uh, clinical performance has fallen, actually um, there's a lot of evidence that, for example, uh, waiting times have increased, etc., um, that uh, deficits ha have increased. Uh, so that 3.1 that is, is enough to, to steady the ship. It, it's not enough to improve performance. Um, and what, what about Labour's enormous numbers then? So as Rachel said, it, there is a step change in terms of the level of ambition. Yeah. Um, so to the Lib Dems, it's equivalent of about 3.8% a year every year versus 3.1%. And for uh, Labour, it's about 4.1%. Um, so we think that the Lib Dems and Labour plans probably are enough to improve performance, but probably not enough to take it back to 0910 levels. 
And what about some of the uh, points that the parties have been quieter on, if you like? So you talked about the, the increase in police, but what happens to the rest of the justice system? More police, and perhaps they go and arrest more people, and then what happens at the courts and prisons? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to see the, the criminal justice as a, as a whole system. And obviously what happens to the police is then going to have an impact on the CPS, then on the criminal courts, and then on prisons. And I don't think that any of the parties have really thought through in great detail how the 20,000 additional police officers is going to have an impact on all of those um, services. So, for example, the current uh, Ministry of Justice demand forecast suggests that demand for both um, criminal courts and for prisons is likely to decline over the next five years. But that's because those forecasts don't take into account uh, some of the pledges that have been made, particularly 20,000 additional police officers, but in the case of the Conservatives, also uh, reforming sentencing um, so that um, more people are kept in prison uh, for longer. Now, Lib Dems and Labour have talked about greater use of rehabilitation, reducing the number of short-term prisons, so that could help to mitigate uh, part of the impact of the additional 20,000 police officers. But but these are areas that have been under a lot of strain. Absolutely. And they've got some of the cuts. They're not the most popular things for politicians to, to go out and raise money on. So they've, they've been comparatively starved of money. So I think prisons is arguably the public service that has suffered most in terms of the quality of the service that is provided since 09-10. So, for example, uh, both violence levels, uh, self-harm levels are more than double uh, what they were in 09 10 uh, self-harm levels, particularly um, women's prisons, are appalling. Um, so there are three self-harm incidents for every single um, female uh, prisoner at the moment, which is ridiculous. Um, there has been a sharp increase in the number of kind of incidences of poor behaviour, whether that's kind of hostage-taking or uh, otherwise kind of refusing to follow commands, and there's been a sharp decline in the amount of rehabilitative activity that is taking place in terms of the number of prisoners who are starting and completing uh, courses, be that in kind of uh, reducing violence courses or in terms of formal uh, English and maths qualifications. Um, so. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's not a particularly yeah. popular public service. It's hard to make the case to increase spending on prisons. Um, it's hard it, to make the political case, maybe. I mean, I mean you've you just made a very good case yeah. for it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And as, the funny thing is, with prisons, actually, um, spending and staff numbers have been increasing for the last few years. Mm. Um, but so far, it hasn't had any impact at all on the performance and actually violence has continued to get yeah. worse over that last couple of years and that's because and this is a, a wider problem a lot of very experienced staff left the service and if you bring in new staff they are not as effective indeed new staff take time to train up they take time of the experienced staff and they are not able to run those services as effectively so Yes, you know, both uh, Lib Dems and Labour, for example, are pledging uh, another 2,000 prison officers, which basically takes us back up to 0910 levels of staffing, but it's not clear whether that will be enough to properly steady the ship. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll come back to some of these points. I want to ask everyone about the, the, um, the, the health question in particular. Giles, you, you've, um, you're writing about this a lot for, for us. Uh, you've come from number 10 fairly recently. Um, does this look like a real battle of ideas to you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I look at these, these manifestos now wearing two hats. One of them, the voter hat, is actually really pleased. I've never seen such a wide range of choices. And if you really study these manifestos, which we know voters really don't, you can and see... And particularly when they're only given two weeks to do it. Yes, yeah. and th this might seem like a trivial point, but people were talking a lot about the Tories having moved leftwards and Labour having moved the whole debate with their 2017 manifesto in particular. It would not have been impossible for the Tories to have ended up quite close to the Labour Party, Labour to have sort of banked its gains but not pushed it further. And, 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 and the, you mean left, leftward in what sense? Leftward in terms of fiscal spending, which yep. we saw even before the election, from the, a sort of temporary defeat of the Treasury yep. that you saw... Um, being forced to re release lots more money for things like education and health. Um, but, all, but Labour chose to take that 2017 manifesto and 
double or triple it, it felt like. And in particular, they've put a huge gulf between themselves. I think it is a double or triple, isn't it? It's yeah, 40 in terms something of up to 80 something plus the. But yeah. I, think that yeah, great, I think that greatly underestimates the scale of the difference. Because one big difference with Labour, which cannot be said enough, is their belief that you can take a lot of assets straight into the public sector and not really count that fiscally. And that is a huge difference of opinion. In fact, I mean, on a sort of two by two matrix, all of the parties seem to think they need to account for current spending, but Labour's difference on capital spending is really quite enormous. Um, and it's the Tories who've decided that they cannot really risk to being accused of a t being a tax-raising party at all. And now, but it's as the policy wonk that I'm slightly dismayed with all of this, um, in that, as usual, you look to the manifesto not only as a way of signalling the differences in parties' values, you look at it as a document that civil servants and advisers and ministers within government will be able to use as a sort of guiding star for how to get things done. Because the reality within government is you cannot keep referring things back up the chain to say, what did you really want? You want something that makes it really clear what the priorities are. You cannot choose everything. The Conservatives are still, in my view, somewhere where they were in 2015, where they wanted to say, we believe in all these things, we have these values, but they won't release the money to get them done. I mean, the really massive difference, I think, is on social care, where all of us have become increasingly aware that there needs to be a probable figure around, by 2030 or 2035, when it demographically peaks out, £10 billion. Labour and the Liberal Democrats have decided to go out and say, OK, we're going to raise this through taxation and do it. And the Conservatives have just said, we care about social care and we're going to look at it. Well, obviously, they don't want to repeat what they said in 2017, which is, look, you need to reach into your yeah. uh, own assets, if you've got them, uh, to pay for it, though that may have to be part of the... Yes, solution. which was extremely courageous in the Sir Humphrey phrase. It was <laughs> effectively the thinking on the inside in Downing Street then was we're heading for a 150 seat majority. There's no harm in risking that down to 100 to get this thing done. And somehow didn't work out that way. There are also, um, I mean, so, so there's this very large fiscal gulf, which I think cannot be overstated because as Nick has put it, that we've gone as far as we can on this austerity road. And merely announcing that we're not going to take the last couple of pennies off corporation tax doesn't in any way make up for all of the, the sort of deficit that's built up in public service provision over the last four or five years. Um, I mean, Joe's already talked about the gulf we face in, in, in Brexit policy, uh, but there are other ones that I've uh, identified through sort of public discussion of what the implications of these manifestos, like the child poverty stats. They're, they're, due to rise quite significantly if we carry on seeing the welfare changes that are already hard-baked into the policy suite. I think the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party have decided to try to reverse that to a certain degree. It will carry on if we carry on with these austerity policies right now. So I, I see a very large difference. But also, there's a narrative that Brexit was about a lot more than just the EU. It was about long-standing structural weaknesses regional disparities and so forth. All of the parties all talk about this, and they have since probably 2010. None of them seem to have a really decent answer in there. Um, the, Labour, the Labour Party talks about owning everything as if it's the answer, but all you do is migrate the problem from one out there in markets to one within the bureaucracy. It doesn't actually make an answer to the how question. Sorry, uh, I, I want to come on I mean, to all of you about uh, this question of um, affordability and affordability of public services. But just on this point about ownership, which yeah. Labour has indeed made a great, a great deal about, um, how convincing do you find their account of the improvement in performance that would come from the state owning stuff rather than the, public, the private sector? What I find disappointing, is, and Bronwyn, you set me up thinking about this about a month ago, saying let's talk about nationalisation. There was a core of a really sensible technocratic argument that Labour were beginning to make about natural monopolies, about um, assets that have important public sector externalities like climate change, like um, the need for fresh water, like the, the huge benefit we get to the economy from broadband. And you could identify it, something that would make a policy wonk extremely happy, which was a decent reasoned argument on the economics for where some things just cannot easily be owned by the private sector because of all the perverse incentives. And to give Theresa May credit, as I will naturally from this seat, uh, she was beginning to think about these things herself when she talked about broken markets, the need to do things like cap energy prices, which interestingly the Conservatives are going to continue with, where there are certain features that just don't work. And the regulators, for whatever reason, have not yet yeah. been, been, been up to It's an endless it. game yeah. of cat and mouse that they yeah. seem to be failing at. And the consumer isn't seeing these things as competitive markets. A really interesting diagnosis. 
Labour seem to have actually thrown that out. Uh, and uh, the absolute example of this is their suggestion that we need to take the big six energy supply, um, the supply arm, the people who bill you, the people who come and knock on your door, and take those national. That struck me. That, for me, was the signal that they've given up on the idea that you need a decent, reasoned argument about certain kinds of assets and investment, and it's just a kind of let's own everything. It reminds me of this scene in a recent movie where uh, it called Crazy Rich Asians, where Thank somebody you. Yes. <laughs> that was going to be very coy. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> um, where um, where somebody's really upset with the way the concierge is treating them in the hotel, and they want they wander in and they turn them around down and say they can't have the top suite, so they just go out, call up, and buy the hotel. <laughs> and walk back in and, uh, and get, get the concierge sacked and then get to um, enjoy the top suite. A really expensive way of solving what can often seem like quite a trivial <laughs> problem. I thought, I finally found the inspiration for the Labour Party, nationalise everything. I'm not sure Donald, John McDonald's going to thank you for that one. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it yeah. seems like a, hedge, a, a sledgehammer to crack a nut yeah. in a lot of cases. Um, all right, well, I mean, an awful lot more. We could run a whole session just, just on that one. But th thanks on, on that, on the, the battle of ideas. All right, so I, I, to just bring you all in on this question of the affordability of, of public services and what the parties are suggesting in the, in the long term. You know, these are not new problems. I've had officials from the Department of Health say, look, we've been able to see that demand for health for years has been growing at, say, 4% a year and GDP... Oh, has been, uh, not at the moment, but say 2% a year, and you know, something was going to have to give, whether it was spending on other public services or uh, borrowing or tax or something. What, what should we make of the future of, of, of public services and Britain's willingness to pay for them? Um, for me, the social care is the key issue in this, because actually you can't afford not to do it. You're already seeing the impact on the NHS with um, elderly people who can't go home because there's no one to look after them there. And that has a huge, uh, one of the reasons for the rise in waiting lists, the you know, delays in operations, etc., is directly related to that. And the figures are completely shocking on it. So I think, f for me, the Tories' failure to grasp that nettle in this manifesto and, <coughs> and the, you know, the so-called dementia tax that they produced last time was a was a, the sort of the wrong answer to the right question in a way. It wasn't a thought through policy. It didn't solve the issue that it was trying to solve. Uh, and they talk about this, we need to build a cross-party consensus. Well, there pretty much is a cross-party consensus. It just doesn't involve them. That you, you know, you need to spend more money. You need to have a cap on the individual care costs. Uh, and both Labour and the Liberal Democrats are, are committed to doing both those things. Uh, and Boris Johnson stood on the steps of Downing Street on his first day as Prime Minister, said, I've got a plan, we're going to fix it. Well, where is the plan? Um, so I think that's an act of cowardice. Mm. And in the end, the knock-on effect will be continue to be enormous for the NHS. Um, there's a separate question about the scale of the spending that Labour is promising, uh, on including on the nationalisations and things like that. Um, and the, the scale is just so vast, you know, how, how are they going to spend that much money? There is literally a question of who are you going to hire, you know, which projects are you going to spend the money on? You can't shovel the money out of the door fast enough on that. So there's bound to be a problems arising with efficiency on that. They're not going to be able to spend the money effectively. Um, and then also, obviously, all the economic consequences of the tax rises, which maybe, you know, makes it harder for you to... Um, mm. raise more money in future. Mm. So I think the, the sort of disparity between the two parties is so vast um, that they both kind of, I mean, the, the scale of Labour is just extraordinary and, and ridiculous. And do you think the public is believing that? Well, I think, no, I don't think they believe that they will deliver what they're promising. And that's, mm. the, that's the key thing about manifestos, is you can say whatever you want, however much people like the policies, if they don't trust you to deliver them. And I don't think Labour is trusted on the economy or delivery or competence, mm. partly because of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. I don't want to refight the last election, um, but just you said the dementia tax clearly mm. wrong. Well, it was clearly wrong politically. Um, but, um, you know, from the other point of view, you might say, look, if people have got assets, uh, why should it be a right to hand them on to their children? Um, 
why shouldn't they spend some the, of that wealth? And this the, was obviously what the Conservative manifesto was, was, was getting at. Yeah, and, and that's right. And they took the unpopular bit of the policy, but without having a cap, which, which solved the yeah. problem. So yeah. the real issue is that some people, if you have dementia, that's why it was the dementia, if you have dementia, your costs can be catastrophic, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, whereas if you have cancer, it's funded yeah, by and the it was, NHS. It was, it was not and dealing the policy with that, 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 that sense of unfairness the, between them. The policy the, yeah. didn't solve yeah. that fundamental unfairness while having all the unpopularity of the tax aspect. So the, I agree with you, the tax aspect, there will have to be some element of people paying, whether that's from assets or income tax, but there's no point doing that if you don't have the cap on costs. Mm. Do you think local government should be responsible for paying for social care as much as it is at the moment? So, you know, if you look at what's happened to uh, local government uh, funding um, since 0910, there's been a substantial cut in the um, grant that they get from central government and they are more reliant on taxes that they can uh, raise locally, uh, such as uh, business rates uh, and council tax. Um, what, in, in order to kind of square the circle of rising demand for children and adult social care whilst kind of reduced overall spending power is that they have protected children's social care completely, mm. indeed spending on kind of the most critical bits of children's social care, so for uh, looked after children, child protection and those with disabilities has actually increased mm. uh, since 0910, but they have cut deeply the more universal children's services such as youth services and children's centres. Mm. Um, adult social care spending is now about 2% below where it was in mm. 0910, so it's, it has been protected a bit uh, relative to some of the other services that local authorities provide such as kind of libraries and parks. So, so they're, having, they're paying for social care um, but they're squeezing out they some are, of the things, the voters, things the voters think that they're paying their, their um, local taxes for absolutely, and you know, I think on, on on social care in particular. So, looking forward, we think adult social care is the area where demand is likely to rise quite substantially up to in the in the in the coming years, and where current government spending plans are definitely not enough even to maintain standards of as of 2018-19. I think there are kind of it's helpful when talking about social care to split out two things. So we currently have a heavily uh, means-tested and needs-tested mm. system, um, and that has become less generous since 0910. Mm. So we're now providing support to fewer people, and more people are having to either self-fund their own care or rely on support from friends and family. There is then the wider question of, do you expand the, the government's offer? For example, by offering free personal care, as Labour has proposed in their manifesto, and as we have uh, in Scotland at the moment, mm. and providing some sort of cap uh, mm. on the amount that, mm. is, that is spent. I mean, I think none of these problems are technically difficult to solve. There are pretty easy solutions to all of this. The challenge is how do you raise the money to yes. pay for yes. it and how do you ensure that is provided consistently over time. Mm. So while I agree that it is a cop-out for the Conservatives to say we're going to try and reach a consensus. Look, they've had two and a half years to try and reach a consensus. They haven't done anything. We could have put the mm. green paper out some time ago, and that's the starting point for it. I do agree that in the long term, if we're going to have stability in the social care system, <laughs> the only things that last are those of which there is some sort of consensus. And mm. the, the key question here isn't how we do it, it's how do we pay for it for it. So I think the Lib Dem proposal, which by coincidence is very similar to what we proposed uh, last year, um, which is that you need two stages to this. You, that a, a Royal Commission is not a, a good idea. Royal Commissions don't have a good history. The last one was two decades ago and that failed. But there are other forms of kind of independent expert-led inquiry that you can use. And I think a, a very good model for trying to forge what's a political consensus is the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. So that was a committee of both houses. It was led by a respected MP, Andrew Tyree, who at the time was uh, chair of the Treasury Select Committee. Uh, and it, it very effectively took the, the politics out of kind of banking uh, regulation, um, mm. which was which was highly political at the time. So I think that is a good way to build consensus on the mechanism used to raise the money. Mm. 
you then need to ensure that that continues to be enough over time. And so the second part is having a sort of independent OBR-like body to say, okay, in 2020, this is what we thought we needed. This is what we thought was going to happen to demand. This is broadly what we thought would be enough. Actually, things have changed over the last few years. Actually, now we think you probably need this much. Um, and also to assess whether government plans are credible. Right. Well, let, 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 let me pick up that point. Thanks, thanks very much, Giles. Um, the OBR, uh, in one of its more laconic reports, said, "Look, the country is going to become a health service uh, with a small rump of a country attached." Um, if, if you simply take the projections of things, where, where do you think the public appetite for um, paying for public services is going to go, and, and how should politicians deal with well, this? Well, if you believe the regular polling you see through the British Social Attitude Survey, there's, there's a cyclical wavy line. They ask three questions. Do you want lower taxes, lower public spending, about the same, or more of both? And more of both and about the same tend to go up and down depending on the state of the... Um, and it's normally with a lag. So um, it reached a peak that we want to raise taxes and raised spending around 2001 2 about three or four years after the very worst of the sort of <coughs> Ken Clark sort of spending cuts and problems with public services that happened there. And it really dived by the time of 2010. So people were saying, we've got too big a state now, and they kind of had support for austerity. It's now climbed all the way back up again. So people want higher taxes and higher public spending. And I do think that the Conservative story of 2017 was partly not realising the tide had turned really quite quickly from 2015 to 2017. A lot of the the stories that Nick identifies in his performance monitor were finally getting through to the doorstep. So in theory, people do accept the case that you need to have higher higher taxes and higher public spending. You get the feeling that all three parties see that to a certain degree. The question is whether people really understand what that means when you give them the actual details. People are easily fooled by the idea that taxes are raised on other people. The classic example is the 83 billion that Labour talk about, the the 80,000 pounds earner limit at which point you start paying your personal income taxes. Most people are well, well below that, but that's only about six or seven billion of the amount that the Labour Party are planning to raise. The rest of it, you, you end up in a morass of tax incidents arguments, but it comes from some individuals and humans somewhere. Mm. And it's very hard to believe that the public won't feel the effect of those and might change their mind slightly. So they do believe in it, but they, they don't like it when you give them an individual measure like stop freezing fuel duty or uncapped <coughs> council tax or mm. other things that people can really feel. Mm. Finally, just before we go, go to your questions, Joe, let me ask you something completely different. I've just come back from Northern Ireland where I was talking about the really excellent report that Jill Rutter here and, and Jeff Sargent put out on the consequences of not having a government in, in Northern Ireland now for 1,046 days. Um, Joe, how do you feel that manifestos have addressed, and particularly how they're treating Brexit, have addressed the integrity of the United Kingdom? So the- big question on the integrity of the United Kingdom is obviously the question of Scotland and another independence referendum, which seems to be um, one of the things that looks more likely under Labour, not least because the route to a Labour government is likely to involve um, some kind of coalition or competence and supply with um, the SNP and possibly the Lib Dems. There, I think, Actually, there's a lot of talk about the process for when this could happen and when do the kind of technical Section 30 powers get devolved, but actually not necessarily enough thinking of what have we learnt from the last two years of attempting to leave a union and whether we should think carefully about the whole process of what it would mean for Scotland to leave the UK. You know, questions like um, when would negotiations take place, what would the kind of would there be a so-called Article 50 period after any vote to leave? And it's not clear that much of this thinking is happening. For Northern Ireland, um, the question there is obviously completely wrapped up with Brexit. The Conservatives' Brexit deal um, is now, I think, universally unpopular in Northern Ireland, um, which brings its own problems, not least because the big change that the withdrawal agreement, besides the kind of us moving into transition, is the agreement of what looks like the kind of future relationship for Northern Ireland, both their future relationship with the EU, but also their future relationship um, with Great Britain. And then the other big question for Northern Ireland, which is often painted uh, as the victory of Boris Johnson's New Deal, is that they can continue to benefit from UK's independent trade policy, 
but actually what is that independent trade policy and actually if it's us trading away things like agriculture in order to get access for services does that really help Northern Ireland that much um, and will there actually be quite big implications for the Northern Ireland economy mm. if we open ourselves up to mm. agricultural markets um, mm. and they are much more dependent on mm. that so that again is one of uh, the big challenges there mm. for Northern Ireland. I, you know, Boris Johnson is still talking about the potential for this Irish protocol to be overtaken by a new trade agreement with the UK that would, uh, with the EU that would then kind of supersede it in the way Theresa May hoped that her future relationship would supersede her version um, of the backstop. But if you are going <coughs> to try and get a trade agreement in 11 months to come back to that point on timing, the chances that you will get to something anywhere near ambitious enough that could supersede that and come up with a kind of frictionless border between the UK and the EU and Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland looks pretty unlikely. Thanks. Uh, Rachel, quick thought. Are we going to spend next year talking about whether the UK will hold together? Yes, and I think the politics of this for the election are really fascinating because Boris Johnson is trying to get the story up that it's two referendums if you vote for Labour, vote for Labour is a vote for a Corbyn SNP coalition, which of course the Tories did very successfully um, with the Ed Miliband, do you remember uh, Ed Miliband in the pocket of Alex Salmond in 2015? Funnily enough, I think many of us do remember that. <laughs> yeah, which delivered uh, David Cameron a, um, a majority. But the dynamics this time are very different because if the Tories do get a majority and d Brexit does go ahead and particularly potentially a no-deal Brexit at the end of next year, the implications for the union are enormous from that. And that's going to be, in a way, perhaps more at risk, or at least at risk. Um, and the, the polls, in, as, in a way, I think the other thing that's very interesting is the polls have the opportunity, have the sort of potential to affect the weather as well as reflect the political weather, if you like. So the, that uh, advert with um, Ed Miliband in the pocket of um, Alex Salmond actually did drive traditional Tory voters back to the Tories and moderate sort of centrist voters. Um, whereas now I think the same dynamic potentially could happen if you have this sense of the Tories heading for a big majority, uh, people do, will people start to t vote more tactically and that sort of traditional Tory voters, moderate Tory voters think about voting for other parties. Great, thank you. Let's have some questions. Right, first, and I'm going to take two, 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 two at once. Uh, Paul Warland, before I ask my question, I, I was a former member of the European Parliament and I remember after I was elected, we were addressed by the chairman of the Conservative Party who was Lord Thornycroft, who was a, a, a very front-runner politician after the war. And somebody said, we've got a problem with a couple of items in our manifesto. And he looked at them and said, my God, you didn't read the manifesto, <laughs> did you? I mean, totally ignore it, he said. But my question is, I certainly from my experience canvassing, the two issues are get Brexit done and Corbyn. And I would have said, and I've been to my former constituency, which is Stoke um, and Gloucester and Cheltenham, I would have said Corbyn is now running ahead because people don't really want to talk too much about Brexit. But the other issue that strikes me under, under this... By Corbyn running ahead, you mean the issue of Corbyn, oh, as, as opposed Brexit. to But the other the man himself. thing that I'm struck is, as in contrast to 2017, is how the Conservatives are much better than they were in 2017 in appealing to the older voter who is very, I think, key to this election, where they have a lot of support. And if you remember issues were brought up about care mm. to older people, which damaged them. This is the week I get my 200 winter warming grant, for example. Okay. But I'm, so I'm very struck by that, and I'm wondering if that is an important element in it. Or right, is, so, the, is so the report that we're getting a large number of registrations from young people I was going something, to add that, yeah. something we should watch? Yeah, okay, so thank you very much. Older voters, young, younger voters, uh, thank you, excellent question. And, and let me take this one as well. Uh, could you possibly wait for the mic? Peter Wilson-Smith. Could I just go back to the, the question of the union? Um, I mean, there seems to be an assumption that if Brexit does go ahead, Scotland, Scottish independence is more likely. And, I mean, it's clearly that the prospect has strengthened the SNP, and you can see 
why Northern Ireland might drift away. But economically, um, you know, if Brexit does go ahead, it becomes incredibly difficult for Scotland to go independent. I mean, the kind of problems you have with the border in the Irish Sea, if you imagine that on a much more permeable border between Scotland and uh, the rest of the UK, even as, you know, assuming even that Scotland was, uh, you know, remained or was able to remain or rejoin the EU. Mm. I mean, it, I would have thought it would make Scottish independence almost impossible. Uh, thanks. Uh, two, two good challenges there. Thanks very much. Rachel, do you want to start? And yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about who votes and who votes where. So another question that I'm interested by is the differential turnout. So there was one poll showing Remainers and um, were more likely to be certain to vote than Leavers, for example. And the way in which those things start to affect, uh, and also the, uh, the older versus younger uh, voters. But the key thing is going to be where people vote. Do people vote tactically, whether they're older or younger? Uh, these national polls, I think, aren't necessary. They will have a sort of, you know, rising tide effect across all seats. But more, as important, will be whether there are swing, different swings in different constituencies, and that may be partly to do with age, uh, you know, dynamic. Maybe partly to do with the leave remain aspect. But I think we have to be careful of looking at the national polls as a sort of indicator of everything, and, and look at the local factors as well. So do you think this picture is right, uh, or right and, and not particularly relevant, that the, the Conservatives are, are wrong? Um, um, I, think, I think they are try targeting old, they are trying to make sure they don't lose older voters, let's say. They're way ahead of, among older voters, um, and they're way behind among younger mm. voters. Uh, and the, the Labour are make, putting a lot of effort into getting, signing up, uh, you know, making sure that young voters were registered to vote in time. There was a huge amount of social media activity around that, Facebook, big campaign, uh, and the record numbers joint signing up. Whether or not they actually vote and where they vote is what's going to matter, is my point. Mm. And, and Scottish independence, uh, uh, almost impossible, yeah. Yeah, I think um, Brexit makes it politically easier, but practically much harder to actually do. I mean, on it being politically easier, there was someone who was very uh, involved in the Indie Ref stuff in the UK government um, who said to me that there were two reasons they thought um, kind of swung it in the end uh, for the yes camp uh, for the no campaign. Um, it was uh, number one um, that you had the leaders of both parties up there, Conservative and Labour, campaigning together on the same platform. With where the current parties are, that looks much less likely to be something that would happen again if it were to happen relatively soon. Uh, and then the second thing, there were the, a big group of people who said, um, my heart says independence, but my head says stay with the UK. And actually, if we are going for a what is seen as an English nationalist-driven harder form of Brexit, and there is talk of Scotland rejoining the EU, however unlikely that may be, then actually maybe that equation shifts. So politically, I think it will make the independence campaign, um, it will give them a boost. But as you say, practically, I mean, we come to this, it's kind of Groundhog Day, but what does independence mean? <laughs> and what is that deal? What will the relationship between Scotland and England be? What is envisaged by that? Um, we still don't know, and actually, at what point in that process are we going to find out what it means? Is it after the vote, and in which case will people want another vote to decide whether or not, based on the facts, they still want to go ahead with it? Um, Nicola Sturgeon doesn't seem so keen, even though mm. she wants that south of the border, she doesn't uh, seem so keen on that idea. Exactly. I mean, there is a kind of interesting irony in some of the SNP positions. So would they ever consider leaving the UK without a deal? Um, would they want to ensure that they had negotiated something before they left? In which case, what does that mean for the negotiating dynamic? If there is a negotiating dynamic, all of these questions are really up in the air at the moment and will have a big, um, have a big effect on whether or not it is practically possible. On Scotland's view of um, we would then want to join the EU, I mean, yes, you then get the border that exists in the Irish Sea, but across the top. So of the, the Irish table. border problem really then is the Scottish border yeah. problem. Precisely. I mean, admittedly, with some of the less sensitivities than the Irish border um, issue, but yes, you, you still end up uh, back at that problem. And also, Scotland needs to actually get into the EU 
and I imagine Spain will have a thing or two to say about the region breaking off and then becoming an independent EU state hmm. uh, because they will be looking hmm. at Catalonia. So, and it would take, it would take, and Spain and all the others would have to have to agree on this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and Nicola Sturgeon has assumed, uh, it seems to me, that she said, well, of course Scotland would, would, would join the EU, but not discuss this question of the application. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. All right, great. Uh, thanks very much for those questions. Um, let's have some more. Right, right here, and then behind. Hi, thank, thank you for this debate. Um, I wanted to ask um, if you could tell me more about how the manifestos of the different parties address the, the housing crisis and homelessness, um, because I, I feel this is a rising issue for like the younger generation, and sort of public sector renting, the prices are going up and up. So how do they tackle yeah, social housing. Thank you very much. If you'd like to give us your name, you're very welcome. Yes, Lila. Lila, great. Thank you. Hi, Rebecca Collings. Um, you talked about revolution and we've talked about funding, but I'm interested on your views on whether public services and the civil service actually have the capacity and ability to deliver the scale of change that's being set out in the manifestos. It's a really, really good question. Um, Nick, do you, do you want to kick off on the homelessness? Um, uh, I was Charles, gonna... I'll come to you on that. I might defer the homeless from oh, the housing one to Charles, right, fine, but on, I might, on, I might on, pick yeah, up whatever, on that Whatever. Because I think the question since 2010 on public services has been how can you reduce spending whilst protecting service performance as much as possible. That is now, the dynamic has now changed because all of the parties in one way or another are planning to put more money in. And so I think the question is can you put that money in and get increased performance out. And I think that in some cases that's going to be very difficult. As I previously mentioned, on prisons we've been putting more money in since for the last two or three years and it hasn't so far had any impact on performance. And I think you're likely to see a, a similar lagged effect for any public services um, where we increase spending. That's on the day-to-day -day spending. I think potentially it's even uh, more critical on, on capital spending. So actually Capital spending has been cut quite significantly. Actually, many departments have underspent their capital allocations over the last few years. It's just been quite difficult to find shovel-ready projects that they can spend the money on. And clearly, uh, particularly the Labour manifesto is really talking about a substantial step change in kind of infrastructure and capital spending investment. And I think it's going to be really quite difficult, certainly in the, in the first couple of years of the, of the next parliament, to find projects that you can spend that money on without wasting it. What do you think, Giles? I think on think? the question of housing, you've asked a really, really interesting one, partly because I mean, all of the parties now identify promises to build masses more houses as an uh, absolutely key goal. It's also been something that's been around since the Barker Review 2005-06, where people have been talking about the green belt constricting our ability to do this. At the same time, to, I'm not wishing to be pointlessly contrarian, there's extremely good work from the economist Ian Mulhern and from the Bank of England economist Fergus Cumming, arguing that even if you did manage to increase the rate of house building by, say, a million houses above trend, that on its own would only affect rental prices, which are ultimately the cost of housing, by 5 to 10%. If you really wanted to do something that actually put the ability to buy and own a house um, into the hands of the people who have been denied it, unlike my generation for whom a couple, two or three years of saving and you could get a deposit back in the 90s. You would need to do much more radical things that actually really attack the return on capital you get if you're an absentee owner and um, really divert that towards the first time buyers who can't, can't get on there. So a lot of policies that frankly appall the economist in a lot of people, like rental capping, like um, going after particular classes of owners and saying you're going to face a higher tax, as the Liberal Democrats have suggested, like an un, almost uncapped increase in council tax for second homes. Some of these, frankly, much more left-wing policies might be the only ones that actually get to the ownership question changed. What's interesting is that this ownership matter is meant to be a Tory obsession, and they do talk about it quite a lot in the manifesto with policies like right to buy and so forth, but um, with, um, with interest rates currently where they are, in, in effect zero real interest rates, you will have extremely high prices to buy the housing asset unless you somehow undermine the return on capital you get for being 
an owner as an asset owner as opposed to a resident. And that is where, frankly, the Labour Party's standard mindset is a much more comfortable place to be, where you actually go after some of these ways of earning a return as a landlord. But um, they don't talk about it very explicitly. But over the past few years, lots of these ideas like rental, um, like rental caps and like giving uh, even more heft to ha help to buy are, um, are more likely to solve it. I don't think just announcing that we're going to build X thousand more houses will address the ownership question. And that cannot be said enough. That doesn't solve it. Depends how many houses, though. Well, if you, if you go through the maths and the actual standard elasticity, it's not wishing to get boring, but the elasticity is about 1.5%. So if you increase the, um, one and a half rather, if you increase the amount of houses out there by 10%, that would lower the average rental price by 15. 10% is 3 million houses. That's, that's a quite phenomenal amount. Right, it's a phenomenal amount. We can have, the, we have this discussion uh, kind of uh, off stage, uh, even after, but I, I, um, one of the things when Joe and his team talk about what's going to happen to farming and agriculture uh, after Brexit, I find myself wondering whether some of that land, particularly in England, is worth so much more uh, as housing than uh, as, as farming, particularly in the future, that that is where it's going to go. Um, and so at which point three million becomes... Um, uh, not as, as picturesque as some people would like, but, um, but, but, but absolutely doable um, to, be, to be continued. Right, uh, two or three over here at some in, in the middle and on the edge, and then I'll, I'll come. In fact, I'm Thank going to take those three together because we're coming up against the end. Okay, uh, Speaker Price, it really links to uh, the question of how can the civil service cope and what will happen next. But in reality, we haven't had a spending review, so all these things that are being said right now in terms of where they will be spent, are going to have to be looked at at some point, so one can imagine that those manifestos are going to be uh, subject to some sort of checks in terms of what brings you a reasonable return. But what I'm, I'm slightly confused about is, you know, if you look ahead at the, the, the Conservative manifesto, certainly, um, we still have austerity in most areas carrying on, except for education and health, from what I can see, in the following years at present. Uh, what what uh, worries me is that, that we've gone back to having the type of um, fiscal rule, assuming it survives, which separates now, again, uh, capital spending and current spending. And yet there is so much from the capital spending side, like HS2 and so on, which can be diverted to uh, current mm. spending. And, and do you see any flexibility in anything you've seen, and certainly in the civil service experience that we all have, uh, that that will actually be fudged uh, so that some of those services, mm. whether it's mm. prisons or other stuff, uh, actually get proper spending happen. Not increase necessarily, but certainly of the right type. Thank you. Um, Amy Gray, you've, you've highlighted that the Tories sort of slightly ducked the social care issue. Um, the Conservative manifesto is completely silent on the trans issue, which is one of the biggest debates raging in the culture wars at the moment. Um, are there other issues that members of the panel are interested to note haven't featured in the manifestos, haven't featured in the election debate yet? There hasn't been much debate on foreign policy, for example. Um, so is there anything that you think we should be talking about, you think the parties should be proposing solutions to that hasn't come up yet? Great, thank you. The big silences. Um, James Adat, another silence we haven't talked on this morning, an important point. What do the manifestos mean for climate change? Great. Mm -hmm. um, okay, terrific. And thank you very much for those, those, those last ones. Let's go down the panel this, this, this way, Jay. Uh, Joe. Sorry. Okay, on um, civil service capacity point, I just want to... You don't have to pick them all up, but pick up what you want. I'll make sure we absolutely do address them all. Yeah. Um, civil service capacity point. Actually, Brexit as a term hides a massive amount, um, particularly if you are going for um, a much looser form of Brexit as the Conservatives are. I mean, you know, one thing we actually have to implement the withdrawal agreement if it's passed. That's the settlement scheme, which is progressing, but is a massive challenge for the Home Office. We also have to put in place a brand new border between... Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which actually we don't know how it will work in detail yet. That will still be determined during the transition. 11 months for something that the HMRC boss said similar technology would probably take until 2025. So that will be um, occupying people in Whitehall. But then you get the changes to all different policy areas. So agricultural policy, fisheries policy, the new immigration system that needs to put in place just generally how we want to run our borders. So there's a massive amount in there that it's very difficult to see will in any way drop off after we've left. In actual fact, it's likely to peak up because we'll be running much bigger, more complicated negotiations that will involve much more of Whitehall than the first phase. 
um, whilst also getting to the delivery end if we are genuinely serious about the transition ending at the end of 2020. That means all of these new systems will need to be up and running in place and businesses and citizens will need to know how to use them and have a period of adaptation. So that's a massive job. And then very quickly on um, things that uh, we haven't talked about, I'm just going to say something we haven't mentioned, which is something we've talked about a lot in the manifesto campaign, or uh, particularly recently, is trade policy and the way that that is now becoming more and more of a battleground. And before, kind of independent trade policy has been painted as a kind of um, sunlit uplands where the UK can go and get all of these things around the world. And actually now we're starting to see some of the very difficult domestic trade-offs because there are certain areas where we have big and quite protected markets. Healthcare's one, agriculture's another, you could argue migration, where actually that's where other countries will be looking to us and say, ooh, here's an opportunity. If this country wants to go out and strike brand new trade deals and wants to get them quickly, those are some things that could have quite a big positive impact for us. And so you're starting to see it emerge as a really thorny political issue. Um, and one that you know, we've argued you need a kind of independent analytical base for it, an independent body that can provide some shared understanding. Because if these trade deals often take years, the chances of them falling over an election period and then becoming a big football, and often just you end up with the kind of Heathrow scenario where everyone keeps talking about it and then scrapping it and talking about it and scrapping it um, and become, become a real issue. Great. We have heard about it, of course, with, with the NHS and, um, and uh, Trump and so, and, and so on. Um, Giles, in particular, uh, I have huge sympathy for Vicky's point about the arbitrary distinctions within government between different flavours of money. Capital's fine, current less fine. Admin spending is regarded as sort of toxically awful. It's the last one you need to make sure all the other ones are being uh, spent correctly. And it's utterly insane when you have to confront it on a day-to-day -day basis in government. I do hope that whoever comes in is more pragmatic, particularly given that a piece of capital spending will often then incur a current liability. What's the point of building a hotel, a hospital if you can't pay for the nurses inside it? It's literally insane within the government and it needs somehow to be changed. On, on the matter of silences, I think it's a really interesting one you mentioned on trans policy. I, for one, am just relieved that it hasn't been used as a cultural culture war weapon, as was suggested a couple of months ago, might be in the Conservative Party thinking. Um, uh, so I'm relieved in a sense it hasn't been mentioned because I was very worried about that being used in a kind of American politics style way. My favourite missing piece in the manifestos, the phrase inflation and monetary policy isn't in there at all. And we've just undergone 10 years of the lowest nominal GDP growth rate in the country's history. And this has also coincided with all of the problems that follow that, including debt issues, including weak wages, including financial instability. This is the same problem that hit us in the 30s, in America at least, and um, I find it impossible to believe that Labour has chosen to be so radical on so many things, but they've been totally silent about the Bank of England, which, where they looked like they were starting to have some interesting thinking. I mean, that's, that's obviously a personal view, not an institute for government view. It's regarded as extremely toxic, but the Bank of England's independence is a relatively recent thing in our monetary history, and I'm astonished that it's no longer a matter of interesting debate in the left. Finally, on climate change, I, I looked at this when I went through all the manifestos, mentioned 60 times each in the Lib Dem and Labour ones, about 15 times in the Conservative. And there's an if I was to characterise the various parties' positions, the Tory party thinkers would like to consider it merely an R&D challenge. They'd like to, because there's huge multipliers in R&D. So a couple of billion spent on investigating great things like fusion, and we might solve this issue. But then you don't have to distort all the other consumption markets out there in the world that the, um, the Climate Change Committee has hinted at in its excellent work on net zero. Labour and the Liberal Democrats realise you've got to spend a lot more money. In fact, that's what the Climate Change Committee has made really quite obvious, 1% of GDP, which is a pretty large amount of money. And Labour adds the kicker that they think you need to own it all because you can't trust private sector incentives. Um, I'm obviously closer to the Liberal Democrat view on that, that can private sector incentives point, can fix this, as they have in things like the astonishing fall in the price of offshore wind. We need to see that kind of result in lots of other places. At least they do all mention it. But certain really key factors of that negotiation still missing, like what is our position as a country on new nuclear? Not going to be great. Great. So I'll just pick up uh, quickly on um, Vicky's point. So we think that the the spending round that we've just had effectively 
did bring to an end austerity in that there were no uh, cuts to departmental current spending. Now, clearly, some public services within that could still have seen cuts, but that's the first, that's a big change, for example, since the 2015 spending review. Plus, there was, as you said, big spending pledges made for education uh, and health. Uh, clearly, the big question is what's going to happen at the spending review next year, which hopefully will be a proper three-year spending review, not just a single spending review. And I think... Okay. We're, we're going to have to keep it really you know, short, I'm sorry. Yeah. For all of the parties, their ambitions outstrip their plans, and you could have a situation like we did with the 2015 spending review, which it was just undeliverable, and in 1819 the government ended up spending £10 billion more on critical public services than it planned. Great. Yeah, just assignment. on the missing issue, yeah. I think the whole digital world, sort of the wild west, with whether that's to do with how much screen time you should allow your kids, whether that's to do with online abuse, whether that's yeah. to do with identity and cyber fraud, that that's a huge issue for every people, <laughs> citizens, and apart from the sort of labour free broadband, that's not address, addressed mm. at all, and also actually the future relationship with the EU, even though they're all supposedly it's supposed to be the Brexit election. Right, and I could add to that relationship with, with, with the uh, relationship with the United States, uh, um, with France and Germany saying how worried they are about that, particularly in this security defence cooperation. And in terms of things that can change the election, we have the NATO summit uh, coming right up on us and with the arrival of President Trump and all kinds of unpredictabilities there. Um, thank you very much indeed. Terrific questions. Um, and um, sorry, we hurtled through them, but they're big manifestos. There are a lot of things to talk about. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Thanks very much to the panel in-house and out. Thank you.